The thing you have to understand about Amy Winehouse, and it's one of the reasons why I remain devoted to her, um, is that there was a particular time in North London, in and around Camden, um, in the early, early 2000s, which is where I used to hang out when I was a college kid of that age and a late upper high school kid of that age. And you could see the most incredible bands and they would all just hang out in the, in the pubs in this little part of North London and Amy Winehouse would be there. And the Kings of Leon would be there when they were going through town, the, um, you know, the Libertines, Razor Light, you know, all of these, all of these bands from this period, just, they would just hang out there and like, you could, you'd be in a pub, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's them on the other table. And then at 11 o'clock, they'd lock the doors, you know, cause pub closed at 11. So they do a lock-in and people would just like, they'd start playing. Like Amy Winehouse would just grab a microphone and start doing a session in a pub after closing time. And I think it's part of a, it was a whole part of my life. I miss it. Those were happy days. I was a much younger man then. I know that you won't understand this. And if you do, if I, when I tell you, you will judge me harshly and so will others. That sounds terrible to me. I can't imagine anything worse than having to listen to effectively professional theater kids ply their wares in a bar late at night. Oh, that sounds awful. The professional theater kids? They weren't, they weren't doing improv, JD. These are accomplished no, multi-platinum selling musicians. That. I would be keen to get out of there. Uh, but you like smashing pumpkins. What do you know? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. I am uh, very glad to be here with you today, Ed. I am uh, at my in-laws kind of country house in Illinois. Yesterday, we were swimming in the lake all day, and today I... I'm going to, after I finish, I'm going to try to finish my work early so I can help my father-in-law fell some trees on their property and feed them into a chipper. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So I'm very, very enthusiastic about that. But Ed, um, you have some sad news for your family uh, to share. Um, tell, tell us, tell us about your grandmother. Uh, no, it's true. My, um, as people know from my newsletter, both last week and this week, uh, my my grandmother died this week uh, at the at the venerable age of eighty nine. Uh, so so while you're enjoying Lake House life uh, in Illinois, I'm actually as soon as we finish recording this show, which we're doing um, a little early this week, uh, I'm getting in the car with my wife and daughter, and we're gonna we're gonna road trip it uh, from from D.C. to Sweet Home Chicago for for the the wake and the funeral and everything. And um, you know, I it, it's funny I. I mean, I'm obviously, I, I have the the somber feelings that my grandmother has died, but I, I can't call myself sad, um, and and I guess the reason for that is, is a couple. One is, in part, the the faith that we have, the the sure and certain hope in the resurrection. So there's that, but also, you know, my grandmother had a had a full and beautiful life. And she would be the first to tell you that she she was ready. Um, she was ready to go. In fact, she'd tell you that she has been ready um, ever since the departure of her of her husband several years ago. So, at least for the moment, and you know this this will this will I'm sure change in moments of high emotion at the wake and the funeral and everything. Um, but for the moment, I am I'm happy for her that you know to be able to do things like pray the office of the dead for her and good priest friends of mine have kindly offered masses for her and everything that this um i am I'm, I'm thinking of and um leaning on the moment of my grandmother's death not as a you know not as punctuation but an inflection point in her life you know i've been thinking a lot this week about um what benedict the 16th said um about about all of us um and i think it's it's as appropriate for a funeral is for a wedding to say that, you know, we're not some casual and meaningless product of evolution that each of us, Benedict said, is the result of a thought of God. Each one of us is willed. Each one of us is loved. Each one of us is necessary. And, you know, I've, I've been thinking about my grandmother and, and that she was for sure all of these things, but really the thing I've been thinking most about is that she is still all of these things, that she is still willed by God. She is still loved by God. She is still deemed necessary by god that you know she's she was necessary here on earth for 
89 years and the necessity of her life um, will be will be abundantly present uh, in the in the church uh, for her funeral with 20 great-grandchildren there um, but that God deems and loves and wills us all necessary with him in eternity uh, that that too is something I find immensely consoling so so that's what's been going on I mean I'm also looking forward to uh, getting back to Chicago and family funerals in Chicago tend to be uh, have you seen the bear? Yeah, on uh, on on Hulu, the restaurant show. I haven't finished yeah. season two, so don't like uh, don't. I haven't seen season two yet because I don't have the Hulu, so I binge watch the show when I go to my parents' house. But anyway, I've seen the first season, and the kind of family, the kind of accents, the kind of characters that I saw in much of the first season, um, these aren't a million miles away from my extended family in Chicago, and. Uh, you know, if if you have a flavor of that show, that's the kind of flavor that I think The Wake will be um, on Friday. And so I'm looking forward to that. There will be, I expect, a lot of people I haven't seen in, in many years. And um, a lot of people I, I haven't seen in many years and will immediately recognize and others I won't. And we'll get to, you know, sort of reconnect with and everything. And, and it'll be great. I'm looking forward to that. I, I think it'll be good. So, yeah. I think that's a very beautiful perspective. I have not thought about someone continuing to be willed by God in eternity. And of course, it's true. The alternative to being willed by God is to be decimated. And so, of course, it's true. And it's really quite beautiful. And I hope that your grandmother will be um, be interceding for you. I liked what you said. I saw a draft of your newsletter, but I liked what you said about like her memory enduring perhaps as long as her life has. I thought that was a very beautiful reflection as well. I yeah, and I mean this is this is part of what got, led me to the Benedict quote as I was thinking about all of this is you know our memories they they tend to age like physical photographs they get yellow and blurry and 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 whatever and so the you know I think the human instinct is really you know we don't we don't want to forget and we don't want to be forgotten um, but of course we do and we are but that that's the thing is we don't derive and I, I was thinking about this because I had my wife sort of make a list of the things to see the things that she would like to see in Chicago. And I have my own list of things I want to show her um, because she's never been there before. She's never seen the city that I'm from. And, and what does she want to see the bean or whatever? No, 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 thank no, God. No. She's no interest in going downtown whatsoever. Um, I, I might, you know, depending on how long we end up staying in the city, we might go to Wrigley field, obviously, but I, I don't think we're going to do anything uh, more in town than that. We'll, you know, we'll go through my old, um, the neighborhood where I, that I was born into in Rogers Park and, you know, stuff like that. See my old parish, the, you know, the school that I first went to, stuff like that. Um, I'm, I expect if I have a moment of incredible choking high emotion, it may be putting my one-year-old daughter on the jungle gym in the park that I played on. Mm, sure. As a child of that age, I, I think that might give me the feels, um, but we'll see. Uh, so, but anyway, I, and I was thinking about all of these things that I was sure, you know, the house I grew up in, the first apartment that I lived in, all of this stuff and, and thinking that, you know, it's somehow, you know, the instinct is there to show her all of this as though to sort of prove my own existence, you know, like, you know, see, see, look, this, this is where I'm from. This is, you know, this happened. This somehow I feel more real sharing the reality of memories that I have. And, you know, of course, if you, it's an understandable impulse, but the logical extension of that is so if no one remembers, then it isn't real anymore. And that's not the case because human memory isn't, and human experience isn't the definition of reality. It is, it is the will of God. That is what creates, that is what sustains that, you know, we, we exist in our entirety and our, and our histories are authored by God. And it is validated by the fact that God has willed it and authored it. And, is part of it and is loving us in it. Um, and so, yeah, I, that it's the kind of weird existential stuff I've been thinking about this week. Well, Ed, I'm glad that you have been, and I look forward to hearing more reflections on it as we so often must do on this show. Uh, much to my regret, uh, we must, uh, transition from the sublime, eternal and beautiful to, um, the temporal and mundane, because this on the Pillar Podcast, Ed, is where we talk about the life of the church. And so much as I would like to talk about the movements of God, we are going to talk a little bit about the life of the church and some of the reporting that we have done this week. 
in which no, no, no. This is this is entirely right and just, and in fact, sound ecclesiology. The church is both human and divine, which means it is going, both sublime and ridiculous. Just where I was going, my friend. I think that is absolutely right. And so we're going to go from the sublime to the ridiculous because we have a lot of church news that we want to talk about this week. We were talking last week about Pope Francis. It's a very big week. And uh, the the very many things that happened, the appointment to the Synod on Synodality of very many people, um, the new cardinals, and of course it's pretty, you know, we, we're glad that we were able to run an interview with um, Cardinal-elect Fernandez this week in which he tried to clarify some of his theological positions, whether they were clarified or not is is another matter. Um, and uh, and that's actually where I want to start, is there, there has continued to be a um, pushback uh, about the appointment of... Um, Cardinal elect Victor Fernandez as the appointment uh, as the prefect of the um, is it Tucho or Tuco? Well, this is a kind by. of a nickname. I don't know actually. I think it's Tucho, but I I, I don't know. I, I just prefer I, I prefer just to say Cardinal elect Fernandez because I I don't I'm not at that level of familiarity with him. I I don't I don't like to just um, jump into nicknames for people who I don't don't know. I well no I, I it would be. In- it would be impossibly informal to, to address him as such to his face, but I feel like the way that that gets used around, I feel like it's kind of almost a a public persona. Like that's the purpose of the nickname. Oh, it's like, I like I remember the former, see. you know, we had the the former UK Prime Minister David Cameron, who you know was everyone gave him the nickname "Call Me Dave" because he'd always insist on you know I'm just an informal guy, you know, call me call me Dave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so everyone would call him "Call Me Dave," which really upset him, but never mind. One of the things that Edgar asked him about is the, the criticism that's emerging in the life of the church right now of Veritatis Splendor, the criticism that's emerging in very many Vatican circles about Veritatis Splendor, and um, especially like this um, notion that objective moral norms can be superseded by pastoral circumstances or that objective moral norms could even be superseded by charity. There's this theological idea emerging that charity could require a person effectively to uh, violate an objective moral norm and um, and that's being discussed in 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 Vatican circles that you know you, you could have some obligation to be charitable to a person which sort of uh, obviates your your obligation to to observe sort of objective truth um, also kind of coming up against Veritas splendor right now is is the idea that's sort of being discussed in some theological circles and some Vatican circles that God could call a person um, to live in some way that is not in accord with objective moral norms, that that God through the conscience, that the conscience, which is effectively the, the voice of God uh, for us, um, that the conscience could call a person uh, to live in a manner which is objectively discordant with Catholic teaching, that, you know, that your conscience could urge you as a sort of uh, a step not to separate from someone who is not your spouse, not to sort of abstain from sexual relationships from someone who's not your spouse, for example, but to be more faithful to them, right? Um, to sort of cement your relationship of uh, a, a sexual relationship with someone who is not a spouse and the conscience might call that. A- and there is a way in, in, in moral development in which we can gradually understand better what is objectively true and gradually understand better how it is that we're called to live live in accord with the truth. But there's not a way in which the conscience and um, God speaking to us through the conscience can positively call us to live um, in a way which is discordant with what, what is simply true, which is to say the teachings of the church. But these ideas have been sort of germinating and circulating in conversations in recent um, years, some of the conversations at the Pontifical Academy for Life surrounding kind of contraception and the morality of contraception and marriage have have um, have uh, picked up on these ideas and picked up on these threads. And so uh, Edgar asked uh, Cardinal-elect Fernandez what he thinks about all this um, sort of criticism of Veritatis Splendor and Veritatis Splendor sort of insistence on the objectivity of truth and the objectivity of morality. And what he said was very interesting, I think. He said, look, Veritatis Splendor did um, something uh, which aimed to curtail heterodoxy in theology, um, but in aiming to sort of put limits on theological inquiry, perhaps it was too good, right? Perhaps it so curtailed theology that we have not had great theologians in the wake of Veritatis Splendor. And so what we need is a new approach that 
collects everything valuable from Veritatis Splendor, he says, but has another style or tone which encourages the growth of Catholic theology. Uh, wh- what do you make of all that? I have a complicated reaction. Let's speak candidly. Let's speak candidly. All right. I have a complicated reaction to that because on the one hand, I feel like um, a lot of the people who question the very idea of objective moral truth and, you know, have this sort of quasi-gnostic sensibility that, you know, well, we live in a we live in a fallen material state, and so you can't possibly expect um, anyone to to live a life of virtue or sanctity or whatever else. And you know, the important thing is to have a good intention and just kind of rub along as best you can. And you know, truth is out there, but you know, we're down here. And you know, I, I think a lot of people who who think that way and would would support that, you know, heterodoxy, um, would welcome and employ the same kind of argument that Archbishop Fernandez gave with regard to Veritatis Splendor and say, ah, this is a clever way forward. We can, we can cabin this idea and we can cannibalize it a bit for parts that we can then, you know, repackage and reframe in a way to make sure that it doesn't say what it actually says. And it says something different or even opposite. So I'm, I'm sense that that is, you know, a sort of knee jerk reaction that I have. And that is very possibly just cynicism on my part. And I'm I'm open to that part of my nature, and I want to clearly label it and own it and have it there. Um, on the other hand, I do agree with Archbishop Fernandez in one of the points he made in response to that question, where he, you know, sort of went through this this list of theologians of the 20th century, and you know, said basically, where are the von Balthasars? Where are the Ratzingers? Where are the ben- um, the uh, the Congars, the Rahners, you know, we don't have them anymore. We don't have and these sort of... I mean, he, did, he sort of said people across the theological spectrum. Well, I, let us say, let us be clear. What he said was, um, and I'll quote it, in fact, over the last decades, tell me how many theologians we oh, can name. right. I thought the Lubach made his list. My mistake. With the stature of Rahner, Ratzinger, Congar, or von Balthasar. Oh, Not even right. what My they mistake. call yeah. liberation theology has theologians of the level of Gustavo Gutierrez. And I kind of agree with him. I mean, you know, how many times have we, have you and I said, you said you want to speak candidly, so let's speak candidly. Um, Have we said, you know, oh, there are all these terrible ideas floating around around the Pontifical Academy for Life. There are all of these, you know, really silly and frankly ignorant and intellectually stymied attempts to undermine everything from Humanae Vitae to, you know, the authentic um, ecclesiology of... Vatican II and Lumen Gentium and things like that. And, you know, we have both said at different times, you know, it's not that there are people who question what the church teaches or has, you know, defined for the faith. That's not new or scandalous or anything else. This is always so in the history of the church. But, you know, we have often lamented that there isn't even a better class of enemy for the church in, in the world today. And and I think Archbishop Fernandez has pointed to exactly the same thing, just saying, you know, the level of debate in theology in the church today is pretty minimal yeah it's mm-hmm. you know we, we lack giants on uh, both on the side of the church and the faith and even you know the 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 quote-unquote bad guys even the gustavo gutierrez's of our era are you know are, i don't start think, that smart. by the way i think that you're giving i don't think that's what archbishop fernandez was saying about gustavo gutierrez uh, I, I don't think there's any reason to conclude that archbishop fernandez was saying that gustavo gutierrez a famous liberation theologian is someone whose theology is uh, at odds with Catholic doctrine because, you know, Pope Francis has effectively rehabilitated the reputation of Gustavo Gutierrez, who was criticized by the CDF many times, but Pope Francis has sort of brought him back to prominence. Now, I agree or disagree, and I suspect we both disagree, I, I don't think that what Fernandez was saying about Gustavo Gutierrez is the church needs someone who's a better heterodox theologian. No, you asked for my reaction to what yeah, he yeah, said. I'm just saying. I just my reaction to what he said is that he's right. You can look on both sides of the quote unquote theological debate or whatever and say they don't make them like they used to. Yeah. Where no, where are the big brains? I think that's absolutely right. And it's something that we <laughs> indeed it is something that we have often said and I think it's something not not just us but I think one of the criticisms of the, you know, one of the criticisms of the theological dialogue surrounding the synod on synodality and some of the pieces that have been written back and forth, the sort of thing pieces that have been written back and forth, is that many of them are theologically unoriginal. Many of them 
look, it might be a stretch for me to use the phrase vapid, but many of them are vapid in the sense of being devoid of meaning or substance. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, they, written, they, they read like they were written by a chatbot in many. Right. Respects. There's a, that's right. Because there's a sort of theology by catchphrase or theology by sloganeering that comes to rue the day. I mean, we saw in the debate over Eucharistic coherence, one might have expected that the bishops would be making, as they debated how they should consider the sort of pastoral discipline of the Eucharist, the bishops might have been reaching into the vast sort of repository of Catholic doctrine and from the wisdom of the fathers of the church and these kinds of things. What you really saw was a lot of sort of sloganeering and a lot of kind of um, theology by hymnal. Oh, yes, but the Lord says, gather us in, the rich and the haughty. And it's like, well, you're just... The good book says you all just, are welcome. Well, the, right. that particular that's song right. has actually been condemned by the USCCB. That is exactly right. Um, a table, a table of plenty, and let us um, let us build a city of God. You know, I, I I heard that once, and it seemed to me to be a germane phrase to the conversation at hand. You know, this was very honestly, and bishops, I apologize to those of you who are listening, but the caliber of that conversation was not did not require um, sort of. Uh, a d incisive theological mind to unpack and understand. And that's not to say that there weren't bishops who were making good points or something like that. But, you know, Cardinal George, um, I remember interventions from Cardinal George when he was living uh, at the bishop's conference. And I remember how theologically rich they were and how much they drew on what I would call the fontes of Catholic theology, how, how much they drew on the fathers of the church and how much they drew um, on uh, not, not only St. Thomas Aquinas, but on the sort of other scholastic, significant scholastic theologians, and then how much they drew on on contemporary theology or, or more or less modern theology on the sort of conciliar and pre-conciliar voices of people like de Lubach and, and, uh, and, and Congar and Ratzinger himself. And, and Ed, we don't have that anymore. I mean, I think if Fernandez is right about one thing, it's that we're probably in a dark age. Not a dark age. That's too much. That's, we're probably, that's overselling it. Yeah, we're probably in a, um, a a lacking age theologically. There is not. There has not yet emerged, apart from the people who are the giants of the council, Ratzinger, Dulubak, Kungar, all these guys. There has not yet emerged a really profound post-conciliar set of theological voices. There are there are a few good theologians in the post-conciliar period, a few maybe even great theologians in the post-conciliar period. Um, but on the whole, I think when Fernandez says, look, we're in a period of... Uh, in which Mediocrity. All the, uh, yeah, in which all the giants seem to stand in the past, even the recent past, he's right. He he consigns the blame to that for Veritatis Splendor. He says, look, Veritatis Splendor fenced theologians in, and in fencing them in, made them house cats. Um, okay, can I, be, can I express an unpopular opinion on please. that? Please. I'm in favor of that. <laughs> Go on. I don't. I don't know that I necessarily need or want theologians to be ranging wide and free and thinking and freewheeling and, you know, it's like, I, I'm good. We've, yeah, we've we got a lot to unpack and, 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 and redigest and think over in the history of the church and its theological thought. It, it's okay every now and then to say we're going to have a couple of decades where we just pump the brakes. Like, we, we don't always need to be going 80 miles an hour in, in any direction. Like, that's okay. Yeah, I I think that's funny. Um, we Am were I talking wrong? The other, Is it like it's no, no, we were talking we were talking the other day and saying like, yeah, you know how much. If this is the thing, though, if you think about theology as like the contemporary academic theology, which is often. Uh, which is so often characterized by the theological intersectionality. You know, like uh, theology and. Um, gender studies at a crossroads, you know, the, theology and gender studies at, at intersectionality, a new theological ethic of gender, you know what I mean? Like queering the Eucharist, a, those sorts of things. Queering the Eucharist, right. That kind of, um, or, or 
you know, into the theological method itself, queering the query, right? Um, a, 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 a new theological method, you know, a new theological methodology of gender or whatever. Um, when you read that kind of academic theology, it's like, blah. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no, there, there seems to be very little, <laughs> to put it charitably, relevance of that to the life of the church most of the time. Um, but um, the thing about those great theologians he mentions, the thing about Ratzinger, for example, is that Ratzinger is extraordinary. We talked about Ratzinger many times, but Ratzinger is extraordinary because Ratzinger is fundamentally this powerful, not biblical exegete, but biblical theologian, which is to say a theologian who is rooted firmly in the Word of God and is engaging with questions of meaning and um, identity and existence from and through and towards the Word of God. And, um, you know, that kind of person, a person who is speaking into or who is doing the theological work of unpacking the First Vatican Council, which, as I said before, we're, we're not really fully unpacked, and uh, the Second Vatican Council, and finding a synthesis for them, and finding a way for the Church to be um, thinking about what it means to uh, to live the Church's missionary identity now, and respond to the like questions of meaning and identity which exist now in a time of sort of honestly new kinds of crises about meaning and identity is really important. And I don't think we have those same kind of voices. I think Ratzinger as Benedict XVI was that kind of voice, but the world has changed so profoundly since 2013 that the kinds of questions that were, that he, that, that even Pope Benedict was exploring, even until the end of his papacy are, are not, the whole of the kinds of questions that the church needs to be thinking about how to respond to or how to engage with. And so that kind of theology that draws from revelation to respond to the questions about what it means to be a person or what it means to find meaning in human existence is really important. And um, I think Bishop Fernandez is right that it's lacking. But this idea that fencing in is the thing which causes it to be lacking seems to me to be entirely backwards. Well, Rather, it's, it's, I would argue it's a misreading in the same way that, you know, to say that the, the, the teaching of Christ is limiting because it imposes moral standards. It's not that the law of God is, is not a, a limitation on human freedom. It is the key to human freedom that right. the, the truth sets you free. It doesn't fence you in. Yeah, that's exactly right. Or it fences you into to freedom, right? Being able to do, being able to sort of reflect on the meaning of divine revelation and on the incarnation in the context and the boundaries of what the church knows to be true means getting better at a deeper understanding of the truth or an understanding of the truth from a different perspective or uh, from a different way of either looking at things or talking about things. But, um, but doing so outside of the bounds of what the church has taught is a recipe for chaos. It's a recipe or, or dissatisfaction. It's like, we'll just, yeah, let's, remove all the strictures so we can just fall into the same errors that other people have fallen into in the past means that we're not likely to make any advances in the right direction. The value of the road is that it helps me to get somewhere, even if eventually I'm going to go beyond the road or be beyond where the road has been thus far. There's no point in making a turn off, you know, into a canyon in the first three minutes of whatever it is that I'm trying to do. That might be a tortured analogy. I'm not sure I followed bit. it completely but i think i got the general gist yeah neither am i to be perfectly honest <laughs> well maybe maybe you should consider writing it as a theological book and uh yeah submitting it to the sin okay so archbishop um fernandez in talking with us you know said look we had controls but not development and so we need uh perhaps a new text which the part that kind of struck me as strange here is when he says collecting everything valuable from veritatis splendor um because uh it value, rather suggests there is value less it rather parts. suggests that there are valueless elements of, of veritatis splendor what he says is we need something that has another style another tone which allows for um, encouraging the growth of catholic theology as pope francis asks of me and ed you say well we don't need any development of catholic theology i, I don't think that's true I, i'm not I, saying I, I forever think... i'm just saying it's not a terrible thing if we accept archbishop fernandez's premise that we're not living in a time of enormous boundary pushing and titanic 
clashes of schools of thought and intellect and everything, that it's okay sometimes to have periods in the church where we're being more reflective and saying, okay, a lot has happened. We have a lot to, like, you know, we, you've, you've referred in over the course of the show to the post that we're living in the post conciliar period um, several times. I, I mean, chronologically is a fact the council is over. We are living in the period after the closing of the council, but I think Practically speaking, we are still living very much in the time of the Second Vatican Council and that we won't be in the post-conciliar period until the conversations that were part of the council and around the council are closed and they aren't closed. Clearly, they aren't closed. And so I think we are still, in a sense, living in the conciliar period. And until we and have I some... I think that's true for both. I think that's true for both Vatican councils. As I well. think I, I would agree with you. Um, and, and I think and maybe the Synod on Synodality has a role to play in all of this. But I think until we arrive at some sort of um, final punctuation mark on that era of the church and have a stable canon, if you like, to draw upon, it's okay to say we're not trying to come up with a total synthesis of something that's still in motion. That, you know, there can be this, we're living the moment, and then when the moment, you know, passes and everyone has caught their breath a little bit, then we can reflect on it and digest it and produce, you know, these, you know, these great systematic reflections theologically on everything that has gone on in the last 150 years in the life of the church. I, I don't see a problem with that necessarily. Yeah. I, I, I maybe we're saying the same thing because the war, the theological work that seems to me to be done right now is um, in the area of ecclesiology, where I think what Lumen Gentium 25 has to say, plus what the first Vatican council has to say about the Pope's sort of universal vocation, plus the unprecedented era of instant communication in which we live, those things in synthesis with each other do force a conversation about the nature of assent, of religious submission of intellect and will, of the teaching office of the Pope, of, of the humanity of the Pope, and of our response to all of those things. Like we're, we have this, the theological work that I think that needs to be done right away now, much more concretely, is to better articulate and uh, better reflect on what kind of assent, what kind of submission, what kind of filial reception we owe to various kinds of words which are uttered from the Pope and the degree to which they sort of direct the life of the church. Is this a question to your mind of coming up with an ecclesiology or all of the things that you've just mentioned, the both the sort of theological and ecclesiological products of the two councils, plus the context of the modern communication era. Is this a question of requiring a new theology or a new ecclesiology or a development of ecclesiology or theology? Or is this a question of of human relations with the reality in which we find ourselves? That is to say, is this a question of, you know, we, we need to find not a new way of being church, but a new way of being Pope? That, you know, no, I don't think new way for either. I mean, I, I just think when Lumen Gentium 25 talks about the religious submission of intellect and will to the ordinary magisterium of the Pope, that is knowing what religious obsequium, religious submission of intellect and will means and how it differs from assent is hugely important. And so reflecting on that with scripture and reflecting on that with the fathers of the church and reflecting on that with the theologians of the conciliar era to better understand what it, what kind of, to help us better understand what kind of deference we owe to the Pope seems to me to be a critical issue in the life of the church right now. But it's when, a critical issue in the life of the church right now because the, the, the nature of human communication and information distribution and media is such that the, the office of the papacy is able to behave in a way in which it wasn't physically possible for it to behave in the past. Yeah. And, that isn't to say the Pope has to behave this way. The Bishop of Rome has to then, you know, have a Twitter account. You could go into the Apostolic Palace and never talk. Exactly. Or communicate solely through the means that, you know, the church has historically used for the community. It come in the form of, you know, encyclicals and letters and homilies and things like that, that it doesn't have to, you know, there's, there's no rule that says the Pope has to give press conferences on planes or tweet um, or, or anything like that. And, and so I, I wonder, is, is it a question of we need to find a new way of shaping our understanding of the office of the papacy and the ecclesiology of the church? 
Or is it a question of the papacy itself? And I don't mean this particular to Pope Francis. We've talked before on the show about, you know, how it was really JP two who made, who bent the papacy to his personality rather than disappearing into the yeah, office. Yeah. So this is not about Pope Francis particularly. This is about the office of the papacy in the post-conciliar era. And do we need, um, are, are we learning that it's, you know, kind of like the, the transition that the rest of the world went through in the entering of the atomic age that, you know, we have now power and capacity that is so new that we need to handle it very lightly and we need to approach it very gently and we can't afford to play with it because it can, it can enhance and it can destroy very quickly that, you know, the office of the papacy is not with the powers that it is invested with, with, you know, its divine institution. It is not suited to being the parish priest of the world that, you know, that's not its function. And that's not, it's not the papal magisterium is incapable of supporting itself in a coherent way. If it is addressing micro issues and a thousand individual conversations across the whole world, that is it, you know, is it a question of reframing the office or is it a question of saying we need to find new ways of this office being lived that recognize the signs of the times and say, okay, there, there are, there are responses to the times that can be sort of, I mean, not to go back to Archbishop Fernandez's sort of counterintuitive point about Veritas' Splendor, with which we may or may not agree. So do we need do we need to have a little more self-restraint? Well, yeah, I think both, actually. Um, the question of... Um, there are two questions, right? How should the Pope com- conduct? I don't want to say how should the Pope behave, because that has an implication I don't want to imply. How should the Pope conduct himself? Which is a sort of a should question. And then what is demanded of me when the Pope conducts himself as he chooses to conduct himself. Like what, what, what do I owe the Pope and what do I owe the Pope is the, how should the Pope conduct himself as I think less a theological question, more a question of prudence sort of informed by, I, I think informed by sort of some historical considerations of the, the caution which the Pope ought to have about sort of embracing new ways of engaging, like the implications of anything the Pope does are big and therefore the Pope ought to sort of, I think be, relatively restrained a pope not francis but a pope ought to be relatively restrained in the way that he approaches um new 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 sort of aspects or 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 um facets of his ministry one two the question of how ought i respond to the pope uh, is not so much a question of prudence as it is genuinely a sort of question of revelation and the contours of this office and Vatican One gives me a sense of how the Pope may relate to me, which is very broad. Um, and subsequent to that, Vatican Two talks about how the Pope may teach and how you know more gives a little bit more about how the Pope may teach and how I ought to respond to that. But I still think that how I ought to respond to that and what sort of is required of us with regard to the teaching and ministry of Peter is somewhat undeveloped and is well, in need undeveloped, of more but I think reflection. I don't know that it's undeveloped. I think it's underdeveloped in the current context, but I think part of the reason why it feels underdeveloped is because who is Peter has become a much more elastic question than it used to be. You know, yes. at the time of Vatican I, everyone knew who we meant when we said the Pope. But now it's like, you know, Pope Francis, you know, I mentioned the Pope tweets. The Pope doesn't tweet. Francis doesn't have a an iPhone. Right with the Twitter app on it that he's hammering out 180 characters or whatever it is thought for the day in 12 languages. Yeah. There's some junior kid at the wildly overfunded, um, dicastery for communications that has the keys to that account. And, you know, just puts out his little version of thought for the day. It, it that goes out under the name of Francis blue check mark or whatever. What do it I is. owe it? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like it, that's not the Pope talking, but that's someone speaking as the Pope. Do I, yeah, am be, I required to make yeah. a religious submission of intellect and will to the intern at the dicastery for communications because he's got and, the keys to the Pope's Twitter account. And much more interestingly about that is that Francis doesn't tweet, but the first millennial Pope probably will. Oh, almost on. I, I, yeah, we have or tweeting he'll, cardinals. He'll do, so I do threads or blue sky well, or whatever. You say that, but I mean, there are cardinals or... now, lots yeah, of them yeah. who tweet themselves, and there's no right. reason to believe one of them couldn't be elected the next pope and wouldn't continue. It's like, no, nah, I got my own account. Thanks. You can keep that. Yeah, and and, and, tw- and then he'll be tweeting like an old boomer bishop, which is to say, in very, 
with relatively little self-discipline or self-reflection, we could have liking all kinds of crazy things that yeah, that's, that's exactly <laughs> fell down a right. rabbit hole asking, on some UFO article and was like, "Ooh, this is." I, I was reflecting yesterday on Twitter about why uh, something which is just curious to me. It it always surprises me that Leo the Thirteenth doesn't have an active cause that Leo the Thirteenth hasn't been beatified or something like that because the guy was freaking prolific, as you know, and is the architect of modern modern Catholic social teaching, but it's also the architect of like modern biblical studies in many ways. And, and just Leo the 13th is, you know, by any standard badass. I mean, from, you know, doing lots and lots of things. And so I was just reflecting, like we're canonizing seemingly every Pope these days. How come Leo the 13th didn't get into the club? And, uh, and someone suggested that it was because of his endorsement for some Italian cocaine fortified wine that was popular oh, in his I, I, that's a recommending quality from my point of view why not right, right, right. it was popular in his time someone said i i heard someone refer to um the the cocaine and the wine as colombian marching powder which i've never heard that phrase uh, yes, before but it was that i have funny that, that that's were they from britain because that is a a British maybe they were from Britain. I, I don't know. Let's just you can have it. It was they were English, sure. Um, and uh, and but uh, someone suggested maybe it was that, and who you know, someone suggested well, he didn't naughty salt live, is the he other doesn't thing exist in the living memory of the people who are the canonizers. And someone said, well, maybe he wasn't because he wasn't involved in the first second Vatican Council, and you know, all kinds of hypotheses. Um, but I was thinking about that wine like somehow somebody got Leo the 13th to endorse. In one way or another, I, I don't know the history of this. I'd kind of like to, and it seems like a pillar-esque kind of thing, to, to to lend his name or image or likeness or something to this cocaine-fortified wine of his day. And uh, and if that seems impolitic now, I mean, just imagine what it will be like when the pontiff is a person who is accustomed to tweeting or Instagramming or something like that and decides not to give up his phone when he becomes pope. And the sheer number of sort of gaffes and weird historical records that that will leave because as you point out, you know, some, some of the cardinals and bishops who use Twitter use it terrifically irresponsibly and it'll be categorically different to have, I think the pontiff doing the same, it, it, you know, fun times we're living in, man. Yeah. So that Fernandez interview was, uh, I thought pretty interesting, not because I agreed with everything that he had to say, but because I thought he was pretty straightforward about what he had to say, including this idea, like perhaps we need a, Veritatis Splendor too, which so, takes down the fencing around theology. Can I say something that I really like about Archbishop Fernandez? At least you at first can, one. but I would like you to say it if you would uh, right after these messages. Ed, this episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by an anonymous reader who would like you to know about the book, How the Saints Shaped History. Usually when we read about the history of the church, we hear about popes and heresies and councils and reformers and wars and kings. Then in the sidebar, saints. A new book published by OSV tells the history of the church with the saints in their proper place as the protagonists, not the sidebars, not the footnotes from John the Baptist to the Coptic martyrs. Um, Randall Petrides, who's the author of this book, chronicles the history of the church, highlighting 180 saints in particular, both well-known and obscure, and how these saints influenced history by their gifts, their talents, but most importantly, by their resolute commitment to Jesus Christ. This commitment opened them to the grace of the Holy Spirit, acting in definite times and in definite places. Um, this book by author Randall Petrides, How the Saints Shaped History, is uh, totally worth reading. I hope that you'll pick it up and you can get it anywhere books are sold, or you can order it directly from OSV at orderosv.com and then look for How the Saints Shaped History. And we're back. Ed, what would you like to say about the Fernandez interview? Uh, not just about the Fernandez interview, but about my impression of Archbishop Fernandez uh, and his comportment since his appointment as incoming prefect of the DDF, which is what I really like about him so far is he talks to everybody. Like he yeah. gave us an interview. He's given a lot of interviews to, to Spanish language. I mean, outlet. of course, I'd like it if he only talked to us, but, you know, beggars can't be choosers. I'm, I'm not I'm not fussed from way or the other. It is, but it is unheard of in my experience that the prefect of the DDF would give, I don't know, eight interviews in the space. Of Actually, 10. I think he's up to about 20 interviews since he's been appointed. Sky, I mean, he, he simply won't have time to do this many interviews when he's actually in the job, but that he is starting from a premise of Pope Francis has given me 
marching orders to, you know, encourage and, you know, get people going in the field of theology to, you know, to be positive and proactive. And, you know, he's, you know, it would be very easy for someone like him in that situation to just sort of clam up and say, you know, what am I going to be like as prefect? What do I think about this stuff? Well, you'll see, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking to anybody. You gotta be kidding me. I'm the prefect of the Holy office of the inquisition. I'm not, you know, I don't give interviews. Are you nuts? And, And he's not, he's talking to everyone. And I think whatever ends up coming out of his term as prefect of the DDF, you know, whatever it may produce over whatever period of time, I think it will be helped. I think it can only be a positive, regardless of what it is that it produces, that there is, that he is the sort of person who seems to take seriously the notion of dialogue, of explaining what he's doing and what he's thinking and why and how. And that, I think that's part of a, you know, that it seems to me, I'm, I'm, I can't believe I'm saying this without irony, but I actually am. It seems like a really synodal way of getting on with the job. And I, I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah. I do too. I thought I thought that was cool. Uh, he clearly he has to say what he has to say, and uh, he's willing to say it, and he's willing to clarify it, and he he's willing to um, you know clarify it again and talk about it with different people. and And I thought his answer about he Archbishop Fernandez has intimated that the 2021 instruction from the CDF that says that there can't be same sex liturgical blessings could be in some way revisited. Now it is nigh on impossible, not impossible for me to imagine, but it it is very difficult for me to imagine how the church could get to a place where she says that she could do the liturgical blessings of same-sex couples who hold themselves out as, as, as being in a committed monogamous sexual relationship with one another. It just does not seem to me to be plausible. It is plausible for me to understand how the church could sort of bless groups of people or pairs of people as friends but but people who are identifying themselves as being habitually um, committed to a life which is discordant with the teachings of the Catholic Church it seems to me to be very very difficult to imagine the magisterial argument by which such people could be the recipients, by which that relationship itself could, in a certain sense, be the recipient of a liturgical blessing. Like, that just seems manifestly un- discordant with Catholic theology to me, and with the notion of blessings and the notion of liturgical blessings and these sorts of things. Well, this is pretty much what the 2021 statement from the DDF said. statement says. God does not bless sin and these kinds of things. Cardinal-elect Fernandez says that it could be rethought in light, he says, of everything that Pope Francis has taught us. He said that to us, and he said that to others. Um, he, and so uh, Edgar asked, and I thought it was a very good question, okay, well, the Pope signed off on the 2021 statement. He authorized the 2021 statement. Um, so is the Pope's mind changing? Is he undergoing in evolution on this does does is there some reason why the pope's viewpoint is changing you're saying we we have to rethink it in light of what pope francis has taught us but this is what pope francis has taught us so what are you talking about and uh cardinal elect fernandez says you know well we have to be careful because there are expressions that are theologically correct but that can be easily misunderstood and here you can tell that he's implying that the catechisms uh articulation that um, homosexuality is uh, is objectively disordered and homosexual attraction is objectively disordered is in some way a theologically correct phrasing that that can be easily misunderstood and that some of the phrasing of Pope Francis that Pope Francis authorized in the 2021 DDF thing is is similar and and so you get the sense that what he wants to do or what he thinks might be possible or might be important and and I think he's intimated as much in a number of occasions, is that the church ought to sort of soften the language by which she talks about homosexuality so that she might say that homosexuality is differently ordered instead of being objectively disordered or something like that. Different to what? Different from what, of course. Different from the objective moral order, I suppose. But the idea of a set of people in the church is to find, this is a sort of Father Martin argument and others, the idea for a set of people in the church is to find language that they believe would be more palatable to people who are gay to describe their 
disposition in light of Catholic doctrine. I don't think that will work. This is all a parenthetical to what I'm going to get at, but I don't think that will work. I think most people are smart enough to know when they're being pandered to. I think most people are smart enough to know where the rubber meets the road. And so either a change in language will seem to people who are gay, like putting lipstick on a pig, so to speak. In other words, seem to them to be nothing but trying to dress up something which does not do what they wish for it to do, which is to affirm effectively the morality of homosexuality. That's the church is not going to do that explicitly. And therefore, you know, it's my perspective that kind of changing, tinkering the language is never going to do the thing that the tinkers hope for, if that's what they hope for. But the other possibility is that the tinkerers would hope that, and, and perhaps there's a synthesis of both or different people in different perspectives, but the other sort of read is that the tinkerers, those who would say differently ordered instead of objectively disordered, and those who would say, you know, God cannot bless sin is not an appropriate phrasing or something like that, hope effectively to create a kind of ambiguity in the church's language, which allows for those in pastoral ministry and pastoral practice to adopt practices which are indeed discordant with the church's theology, but which seem to be in a certain way tolerated by, or there's space for them to be tolerated by the language of the church. I suspect that's what's going, you know, a big part of what's going on here. Well, you know what would prevent that from happening? Clarity of language. I was going to say veritatis splendor. Veritatis splendor, that's right. But here's the thing that I wanted to come back to. Here's the point that I wanted to make. If that's where Archbishop Fernandez wants to be going, or signaling that he's going, or signaling that the church should be going, boy, that, I mean, just to put it out there as a preview, boy, that concerns me, and boy, do I think that would be catastrophic for the pastoral trajectory of the church and her pastoral ministry and her witness towards the truth. I mean, I just think that that would be such an unbelievable um, sea change. It would not be a small thing, and it would it would have profound impacts on the life of the church. The point, the the thing that I wanted to say though is what I found interesting is methodologically, Fernandez committed himself in that context precisely as you said to a kind of synodal approach to the thing where what he said is i said we might have to rethink this but we're going to do a whole lot of listening first now maybe that means um i want to use the notion of listening as a pretext or a cover to have done to do things um that you know to make changes that's a cynical perspective but i think one perhaps grounded in reality or, you know or at least plausibility but maybe that listening process would uncover the reasons why um, this kind of thing is a very, very bad idea. And, you know, indeed it's possible that the Lord could be in the listening if the listening is um, a str strong, clear, charitable, if the things which are listened to are a strong, clear, charitable articulation of the church's teaching and the reason for the church's teaching and the reality of the church's teaching and the bounds of objective morality and the fact that objective morality is good, is a good for the human person and um, leads to his flourishing. And in the context of that, I think in the context of that commitment, there's more freedom to have discussion about how people who identify as gay can better be received in the life of the church, how to address what I do think is sometimes sort of reflexive, um, d d demeaning characterization of people who, who, who identify as gay, reflective sort of um, hostility that they face in the life of the church. Those things can be better addressed when the objective contours of what the church teaches are defined so that the conversation isn't just a sort of giant plate of free-for-all spaghetti with no end and no possibility of resolution. At least that's how I see things. I, yeah, yeah, I, I think I would mostly agree with that. I mean, I would, I would say that um, what struck me most about Archbishop Fernandez's interview with us was we asked him for his um, three or four central moral questions facing the church, and and it struck me that um, depending on how you read the first and fourth, 
Um, you could read them as either contradictory or mutually reinforcing. It just depends on your point of view. He said, the first one is the absolute primacy of grace and charity in Catholic moral theology, which, you know, again, um, can be and has been abused by some in the past as a sort of uh, way of attempting to present what is essentially total primacy of individual conscience and de facto moral license. But then he also listed as his fourth of the individualistic, hedonistic, and egocentric approaches to life that make the option for marriage, family, and the common good difficult. Um, and I and I actually, I, I agree with all four of the priorities he, he gave, uh, but I, I think that it's interesting because I think the risks presented by an abuse of his first priority, that is the absolute primacy of grace and charity in Catholic moral theology, if you abuse that, what you in fact give into is, I would argue, an individualistic and hedonistic and egocentric approach to life. Yeah. Um, so I, I think if, you know, I, I'm, I'm not quite as cynical as you seem to be um, about Archbishop Fernandez's incoming term. I'm, I, I'm, as I said, I'm impressed that he seems very open and engaging with everyone coming in the door. And so I want to meet him with the same spirit and say, you know, we'll, we'll play the balls as it lies. And, you know, if those are his priorities and, and he's going to keep them uh, in their, in their proper balance and see how they, you know, mutually reinforce each other and, and everything, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I, I make no doubt and I don't dispute that there's definitely, you know, um, a group of people who would like to see something very much akin to what you have said, which is, you know, a, a sort of uh, theological moral free-for-all uh, and, you know, the the unwinding and repackaging of, of language of everything from CDF declarations to the catechism to to clear a space for that. I, I agree that takes a bit, but I, was, I thought it was interesting. I, I saw a couple of people um, on the Twitters uh, in the in the thread of underneath the where we posted this interview, um, including from Germany, saying effectively, "Oh, see, another this, conservative." Uh, yeah, this this interview just proves, you know, false hope. This guy is not going to be the one. He's you know he's just another conservative, and it just you know like I don't know. I see that, and I kind of go, "Well, maybe we'll see." Yeah, I think the question is. <laughs> This is something I've been thinking about. I think the question is, do you, if you take... There's a way of reading what Archbishop Fernandez says that says, oh, Archbishop Fernandez affirmed, every, you know, affirmed Veritatis Splendor and its importance. There's a, Archbishop Fernandez affirmed the 2021 DDF document. There's another way of reading things that says, oh, Archbishop Fernandez included in here some things which lie, which latently lie, like that everything valuable from Veritatis Splendor line. Uh included in here some things which sort of lay latently and which seem to be laying the groundwork for a set of arguments, which will, in fact, um, contribute to this sort of theolog theological approach that wouldn't diminish Veritatis Splendor and all of that. The question about which one to take is a question about trust. And Archbishop Fernandez, you know, there are people who would say, well, Archbishop Fernandez has proven himself not to be a person who should be trusted or who, you know, you have to take him in the context of his own theological vision. This is a person who says, I'm more progressive than the Pope, who has said, I'm more progressive than the Pope on many things. This is the person who is the author of um, Amor Satitia, which, if nothing else, introduces considerable ambiguity on some points in which clarity would have been far more important and then allows for interpretations that seem to run squarely in the face of uh, Catholic teaching on marriage and uh, the obligations thereof, and, and these kinds of things. And so, Fernandez is, I think I'm saying, slick. Like, this is, guy, this is a smart guy who has said a lot of things and been open about saying a lot of things, but hasn't said everything. Very clearly, hasn't said everything. And there is, uh, hasn't said everything he thinks, and is possibly thinking several moves ahead and laying, laying down the lines here and anticipating objections and approaching things in a way that um, demonstrates that he anticipates objections like this. This is a person who I think is not is smart. And, uh, and as you say, we have, all, we have often prayed um, Lord, just give us some smart leaders in the church and that will be a start. Um, so that's, you know, something I'm not optimistic about Fernandez. I think if you take it in the context of who he has said he is, you know, he has a certain theological perspective and a certain kind of theological uh, uh, agenda. 
and uh, and I and I anticipate that that will play out exactly the way that it will play out. And our interview with him only serves in my mind to confirm some of those things. Although I'd like to talk with him more, I'd like to challenge him more on some of those things. I'd like to ask him to elucidate on those kinds of things as a person. I think his personal style, demonstrated by his availability for interviews, demonstrated by his inclination to um, to consult. Those things seem good, but uh, his theological vision seems to me set like something that will become the locus for a lot of um, considerable chaos and difficulty in the church in the years to come, assuming he stays in his office for very much longer. And of course, he stays in his office at the will of the Pope, so who can say? I guess time will tell. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose so. Um, but there it is. And I know you've got to drive to Chicago at final thoughts and wisdom. I don't know that I have any particular wisdom to offer, but I, I don't know. This is this is not the conversation that we planned on having. This is not the conversation you said we were going to have fully thirty seconds before we started recording. Um, so so it's caught me a little bit on the hop here. But um, you, I, I I find myself in the unusual position of being less pessimistic than you in this conversation, and I find that odd. Um. I I don't know. I I I think with Archbishop Fernandez as with um, most other things in the life of the church that give me pause or make me feel some kind of anxiety uh that you just have to, you know, see what God has in store. And uh like I said, play the ball as it lies. I but we'll see. He's, you know, he's come he comes to Rome um in 2 months more or less. And, well, you know, we'll see where it's, it, he, as soon as he arrives, basically, we're staring down the barrel of the first synodal session. You know, there's, there's a lot going on. There's, there's a lot of movement right now. And um, I don't know, it, it, would be, it would be interesting to see how all of these things play off each other and, and what comes out at the other end. We'll see. We will indeed. We'll be back next week to talk about that and much more. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and NJD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined by my pot, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And please do me a favor, if you will, and pray uh, for Ed's grandmother. 